Hey everybody, it's Tommy Canale and welcome to Before the Lights Podcast, the show to find out how those in sports, music, and entertainment made their mark. It's holiday time, which means shopping. Get your merch, beforethelightspod.com slash merch. That's beforethelightspod.com slash merch. Today, we have an angel and real estate investor with a background in creative process. He has decades of media experience and is the executive producer, creator, and founder of CrimeCon, a Chester, Connecticut native and a true crime entrepreneur. Please welcome to the show, Kevin Belf. Kevin, welcome to Before the Lights. Hey, Tommy. Good to be here. I want to do a shout out to Bob Delaney, who is a mutual friend of ours, a former guest on the show, is going to be speaking at CrimeCon 2022 in Vegas, which we're going to get to, but just wanted to say thanks to Bob for making the connection. Yeah, same here. Thank you, Bob. All right. Before I get into CrimeCon and we get into your background, just a curiosity, were you either a cops fan or some one of those early crime shows that got this going? I don't know if it got it going, but absolutely on cops, like, you know, grew up in the nineties on cops and Dateline and, uh, you know, a bunch of the scripted shows too. So, uh, yeah, cops, uh, I, you know, a lot of people don't think about cops as being a true crime show, but it was one of the pioneers of true crime. Yeah, it was back there with, uh, I think it was, what was the other one? Judge Judy back in the day too. Oh, yeah. Judge Judy, people's court, Rusty, <laughs> yeah. the bailiff. Yeah, absolutely. All right. You were an auditor at KPMG and a consultant with Arthur Anderson. Those two positions, Kevin, what did they do to help you with what you're doing today? Mm, good question. Well, one of those companies is out of business. So I hopefully, uh, <laughs> hopefully the, you know, that lesson was learned. Uh, I had nothing to do with Enron and Arthur Anderson. So, uh, you know, it's a very, a lot of people, uh, you know, when they see my LinkedIn, they go, yeah, how did you go from like big six accounting to, you know, being an entrepreneur to crime? You know, I think in a lot of ways it serves you well because especially if you run a small business and in the events business is, uh, you know, relies on this a lot. But the finance and accounting, people that are math phobic may not like to hear it, but it's a it's a it's an important part of everyday life. You know, whether that's a you're a barber or a dentist or you run an events company, you know, um, and I felt like it not only taught me the logistics of the math around finance and accounting, but it gets you to think in a certain way, a logical way. Right. In accounting, every debit has to equal the credit. Everything has to balance. There's a process to everything. You can't do this before you do this. And I think that serves you well in life in terms of you want to put on CrimeCon is this massively complex, huge three-day event. You know, you eat the elephant one bite at a time and you do accounting one bite at a time. So I think it's a way to think maybe that, that has helped the most. Another thing you have done in your experiences, you spent 10 years as a senior vice president of publishing at Mercury Radio Arts which turned out 13 number one New York Times bestsellers and 20 national bestsellers. I'm assuming and guessing that the experience you had there with Mercurial Radio Arts has definitely transcribed into what you're doing with CrimeCon and helped market that. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, book publishing is, is a little bit of a unique industry of its own, but it does hit on kind of everything that you need to have a successful product, no matter what you're doing in life. You know, I mean, with a book, you've got the creative process, you've got the business deal with the publisher, you've got the marketing and the audience connection, you've got the distribution to, to, to booksellers. Um, you know, really, it's a really a micro business in and of itself. And so 
both from the creative side and also the business side, I thought that experience, I was involved with creative the books, but I was also running the sort of imprint where we would bring on other authors and, and publish them. So that idea of just finding people that the audience would like and then doing a deal with those, those folks and then helping to edit the books, um, you know, again, very large, complex projects that I think you could break down day by day, sort of, I guess, was the, was the MO of my early career. In 2015, you started Red Seat Ventures, partners with talents, brands, and influencers to fund, build, and operate unique businesses. First off, I want to ask, where did the name Red Seat Ventures come from? And does that have any kind of personal meaning? <laughs> so we, we live in Manhattan. We work in Manhattan. Um, and by we, I mean my brother and I, who's one of my partners here at Red Seat. And we are big Red Sox fans because we grew up in Connecticut and our uh, parents luckily taught us the correct side of the line to be on. So we stayed us away from the Yankees. Um, but, you know, when you move to New York City, you, you really don't want to start a company and start every meeting off with like, you know, welcome to Fenway Ventures or, you know, <laughs> David Ortiz Studio. So we felt like that would be a real bad tone setter. And, you know, the first 10 minutes of every meeting would be defending the Red Sox. So we went. We wanted something a little bit more subtle, and, the, and I like the meaning of it. The Red Sea uh, at Fenway Park is the spot where, allegedly, I will admit that it's alleged that Ted Williams hit the longest home run in, in um, Red Sox Fenway Park history, landed in the seat, which is an incredible distance from home plate if you ever go to Fenway and actually see it. You, you cannot believe a human being hit a ball there. Um, but, yeah, they have this one red seat in the sea of green seats, and it's very, you know, we feel like from a corny business perspective, it, just, it means something that's very unique, it's something that is, you know, historic um and uh is very recognizable and so we felt it was nice and subtle it's buried on the website which assuming you found but it's buried somewhere on the website so people that really do some research maybe find it but most 95 percent of meetings we can start off without ever having to talk about the yankees i'm, I'm not a yankee fan either i'm a white Sox fan so i'm the other socks <laughs> so I can, I, I can follow I can you kevin how do you make vision a reality it's a good question because it's where I find most people get stuck, you know, and I'm certainly nowhere near a, near a pro at this, but I, I do focus on it quite a bit because, you know, whatever the corny sayings are, I really relate to the idea that ideas are a dime a dozen, even good ideas are a dime a dozen, and especially in this day and age where the boundaries to so many previously very difficult industries to break into have really been taken down. We talked about publishing just now. I mean, in the old days, if an agent and a publisher like Harper Collins or Simon and Schuster didn't bless your book, you had no chance of a book getting published mm -hmm. right now. You could go on and publish a book on Kindle and have it live tomorrow. Um, you used to be able to not get a song distributed unless, you know, Sony music or Warner brothers decided and put it on album. You can go record an MP3 and put it up on spot. You know, the, the barriers are down. So ideas are really not where the premium is anymore. It really is an execution. Um, there's a quote I'm going to butcher, but that I really like, and it says like, you know, amateurs talk about ideas, professionals talk about logistics. The logistics are where people get buried. The logistics of the ex execution is where medium ideas become billion-dollar companies and great ideas fail. Um, it's in the execution. So, you know, the how of it, I think, depends on what the idea is, but I think it is a mindset to say it's not enough to have a good idea. It's not even enough to have a good idea and some money. Um, you really have to figure out, going back to the conversation about accounting, what is the plan and who are the people and how am I going to get this from, if I, even if I can't get from A to Z, how do I just get from A to B? And then I'll maybe worry about getting from B to C. And I feel it is, it has been a strength for myself and for Red Sea to really take what seemingly is just an idea that others, you know, might dismiss and PrimeCon was 
was, was a beneficiary of this. It's a, a barroom conversation that turned into a real thing. Um, you know, how do you take an idea like that and make it real? You know, and that just requires work. It requires effort. It requires time. It's picking up the phone and sending emails and writing checks and, and doing all the things that it takes to, uh, to, to take something from your head to, to make it a reality. I think you hit on something there really profound for people that are trying to start businesses. I think one of the challenges, they try to get too far ahead of themselves too quickly and they don't use the ladder approach. What I always call is you're trying to get to the top of the roof and you're trying, you're not using all the rungs to get there. You're trying to skip steps to get there as fast as possible. And you want things to grow at a rate that may not be fathomable for your business. But I think, as you said, you have to learn to have that vision reality and take it step by step. Cause if you skip something, it will come back and get you in the long run. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a, you know, society these days in some ways incentivizes short-term gain. I mean, are you, you're in Vegas, right? You're in Vegas. I mean, put a yep. dollar in the slot machine and you find out in half a second, whether you want or lost, right? People want instant, <laughs> instant knowledge of whether they're a success or a failure. And Vegas is a very good example of something that does plays to that uh, human desire very, very well. You know, in business, I think it is, it is folks who are willing to be patient um, and, and methodical about the planning and accept that uh, overnight sensations often are five or 10 years of work before anyone gets anywhere. Um, and to the outside world, especially in a world that's amplified by social media, uh, you know, I've got a very well curated Twitter feed that, that is really only the things I want to focus on. And even in there, man, I get caught up reading some stuff and going like, gosh, how are these guys doing so well? You know, it's just like incredible that all these people are so successful. And I think you go out for dinner with them and you get the real story, which is they are successful, but here's how, and here's why, and here's how long it's taken. And here's the relationships they built during that time. And I think it's not the sexy part that people are going to go on podcasts and talk about, but it's the part that matters. What does it mean to you and your brother having Red Seat Ventures on the Inc. Magazine 5,000 list? Wild, really cool. Yeah, I mean, I think you don't, you don't, you start a small company like us and, you know, I think you're just looking to survive, you know, in the beginning, especially it's, is this real? Can we really hang out our own shingle? Will people really return our calls? You know, those early days, like it, honest to God, I'm not exaggerating. If someone was willing to pay us a hundred dollars, I would have gone and washed a car. I would have mowed a lawn. I would have babysat their kid. I mean, you're just trying to make any money possible doing anything. Um, so the idea that a couple of years later you could be on a list like that with some companies that, are just doing incredible things. I think, you know, it's not, I'm not a huge like outside validation person, but I think it does. There's also, when you're so caught up in the entrepreneur journey, sometimes you never pick your head up and say, you know, I'm in a forest. These aren't just like singular trees. And so it is helpful to have something like that that makes you sort of just stop and go, all right, like let's go out to a bar. Let's have a couple of drinks and celebrate. Good job, Chris. Good job, Kevin. Now put our heads back down and work. But it was a helpful moment to be able to, I think, recognize that we had built something that, um, had gotten past even the place where a lot of startups, you know, don't make it out of the first year or two years, three years. And that we had, we had done that felt, felt really nice. Done it really well. And let's get into crime con 2017. You started that after you said you and your brother started red seat ventures, you were looking for new talent, realized that Nancy grace was available and you guys had a true crime interest. How did you connect Nancy grace and the developed crime con? Yeah. So a couple of things were happening here at the same time. I mean, on the Nancy side, we had we had started Red Sea and there was, uh, you know, we were poking around and trying to figure out if she would be someone that she would want to work with us and that if we would want to work with her. And I sort of took the lead at that point in, in figuring out, you know, one of Red Sea's missions is you would take a personality like Nancy, who had been, I think, on uh, CNN, HLN for over a decade, 
So her audience was very well acquainted with her show, daily primetime show about true crime. Very, you don't know Nancy Grace, first of all, sweetheart off the screen, um, on screen, same person, except extraordinarily opinionated and extraordinarily passionate and extraordinarily controversial. I love people like that because you stand for something. Whether I agree with you or not, whether that's politics or faith or true crime or whatever, there's 50% might hate you and 50% might love you. But from a group like us that is working to then figure out how do we create a better audience connection for you? I want, I want that love. And if I have to sacrifice 50% of the audience for that, I'll take it. If hundred percent of people like you, let's be honest, it's probably pretty milk toast. There's not going to be a lot of, uh, of interesting things to work on. So sorry for the sec- the uh, sidetrack, but, but Nancy was someone that I was taking a look at trying to figure out if we build something for Nancy that's digital and that she owns um, a, what would that be? And then B, how would we break through and market it? And so a couple of things were happening. This is a time where true crime was just sort of getting, get into this later if you want, but just getting into sort of what I would call phase two of it, um, where the storytelling side was becoming much more important. You had a podcast at the time called Serial, which was the first real breakout podcast, which happened to be true crime. You had a, a documentary called Making a Murder and another one called The Jinx on HBO around Robert Durst, who is in the news again. Um, and these docs on these prestige streaming networks and this podcast serial did things for the true crime audience that people had not seen before. They, they told these remarkable stories in a way that took their time, was methodically researched, introduced different sides of true crime. You had questions about wrongful convictions in, in both uh, Making a Murderer and in Serial. You had people questioning the justice system for the first time that had never questioned the justice system before. So this whole new audience of true crime is getting pulled in that didn't even know they were true crime fans at the same time that I'm taking a look at this Nancy thing. And I remember sort of one day in the office, this goes to your early thing about idea versus execution, just sitting there at the time we had four partners and I, I just said the word crime con. And I said, you know, we should, we should, um, we should sponsor this. I, whatever, I assume that there's the crime con is like comic con. So whatever we launch for Nancy, let's be the presenting sponsor of crime con. And everyone's like, absolutely. Let's, that's the way to launch this. So, you know, I go into Google, CrimeCon, domain available, like what? You know, and so then the next day it's like, hey guys, you're not going to believe this. There is no such thing as CrimeCon. There is no live event. There is no Comic-Con for true crime. No, like, well, why? Right? Natural question. And so then it's like weeks of why? Why has everybody else thought this is a really bad idea? Getting through that learning process. And then, you know, from there it was really opportunistically this does exist. This is a whole, um, it's a risk. We're, we're a, a one-year-old company at that point with no money, zero live event experience, zero true crime experience, except for my, uh, as you said, love of cops growing up. So, you know, is this really a business we want to be in? And that's where, you know, the betting on yourself and saying, we can learn this, we can be good at this comes in, but that's how it was born. It was opportunistic. We should do this for something else. Didn't exist. Let's do it ourselves. There's going to be links in the show notes, listeners for you to go to CrimeCon as well as to the registration page for 2022 Las Vegas. CrimeCon, made by the fans for the fans. It's an immersive week-long event that's dedicated to true crime. You're going to have crime survivors, investigators, prosecutors, reporters, defense attorneys, advocates, etc. Kevin, what is like the main attraction usually at one of these crime cons? Is it the featured speaker? It, it actually, no. So the main, it's weird because the main attraction is actually the idea that there is not a main attraction. So everybody, one, one thing that I've learned about the true crime audience, and we're now doing this for four plus years, is that they, I always equate it to politics. And actually, we're seeing it in the world of politics right now. If two people sit around a Thanksgiving table and say, uh, 
hey, this is my uncle, you know, he's a Democrat, and this is his friend, he's a Democrat. You'd like, they're going to have a great time at Thanksgiving together. No, actually, they just, all they do is probably fight because one's like a progressive Democrat and one's like, you know, <laughs> the same thing sort of happens in true crime. It's like, I'm a true crime fan, I'm a true crime fan. Well, they don't fight, but they really do like very different things. You've got folks who are extraordinarily interested in the science. So they want forensics and ballistics and blood splatter and all these sorts of really fascinating topics that, that are uh, very heavy in the science world. You got folks who really only want to talk about uh, and deal with true crime podcasters, which is a, a, the number one um, uh, podcasting genre. You got folks who only want to deal with cold cases and mysteries and those sorts of things. Um, and then you've got folks who, uh, you know, like shows like Dateline and 2020 and 48 hours that want to engage with those sort of personality based um, based true crime figures. So my job, you know, as programmer and as a platform that, that CrimeCon is, is to really bring all of that together. And I want people who, who like cold cases to be able to every hour kind of go from room to room. There's multiple things going on every hour. I want them to be able to go from case to case and really dedicate themselves to, to that love versus again, the science person can kind of go off in that direction. Um, but we are, uh, we try to bring it all together. You know, there's, there's, there's people each year they're depending on like, especially if Netflix has put out a doc, uh, they're, you know, one of the number one true crime doc producers right now, if they put out a new doc that has sort of captured the attention of people, don't fuck with cats was a documentary that it hit at a time where then a lot of our crowd wanted to engage with the citizen detectives who were featured in that documentary. So we'll bring them in and, and sort of let everyone experience that in a live event way. But um, it really changes from year to year. And we don't have like the kind of typical headliner that a conference might it's very, um, it's very much a platform approach in creating multiple stages every hour so that people can sort of find their own way through it. What kind of, I'm going to call it the ology of true crime with psychology and methodology. Is that really what pulls everybody in or is it the disturbing details and the gory guts of, of the crime? Well, again, I think everyone kind of comes at it with their own thing. Um, people have their own topics that they like and people have their own reasons for liking it you know, uh, the psychology is a huge one. Um, the sort of why of a crime and why of a criminal and, you know, what makes a seemingly normal next door neighbor turn out to be someone who could commit a horrific act is, is, is top of mind a lot. And when, when people much smarter than me do ask the audience, because again, think about, you know, people sort of think of true crime in, in different ways. The reality is true crime is, is part of society. I mean, open up, look at the front page of your paper today, watch the six o'clock news tonight it's crime. It's just a, it's a fact of life. And you've got from a content perspective, you know, investigation discovery has been the number one network in true crime for a long time. Oxygen then popped up four or five years ago, became a fully distributed true crime network. All of the um, subscription based video on demand providers from Netflix to HBO to Hulu to Showtime, all do tons of true crime. There's a big appetite for true crime programming and it's being served by by big creators so a lot of time and money has been spent trying to figure out this why question why do people want to engage with this content um and a lot of what they've learned is that feeling of understanding um especially from a woman's perspective that they females make up 80 to 85 percent of the true crime audience a lot of their answers to these questions are we feel like if we understand the why we're better informed we're better we're going to be better able to protect ourselves to have a better understanding. If we're dating a guy and he seems sketchy, maybe we can relate that to a case we saw on Dateline. Look for those red flags. So it feels like an understanding or an education uh, piece for a lot of people. So I, you know, I can only uh, go with the, with what the uh, smart doctors have told me, but that's, that's what they think. 
You just said something that resonated with me. Do you guys offer something for people to learn how to protect themselves in CrimeCon as well? We do. We've done a lot of that. We've done a lot of personal uh, safety, um, personal defense. We've done uh, demonstrations. We've done uh, dog demonstrations. Ex-CIA guy who literally shows you how to like break out of your duct tape hands. If you ever found yourself hands duct tape or zip tie. If you ever find yourself in the trunk of a car, like there's all these practical tips, also active shooter type prep. So, you know, you're at a live event and um, something's wrong before something's wrong. As a matter of fact, like you're at a live event, what are the five things you should do when you walk into a room with a thousand other people? Uh, when you're on an airplane, right? The, sort, the flight attendant's going to tell you to look for the exits, but what are the other things you should do? So, you know, for me, true crime is a really wide net. I think a lot of people think murder, serial killer. Yes, that's a part of it. I would broaden, I do broaden true crime out to hacking, uh, uh, people, data theft, uh, domestic violence, stalking. Um, all these things are really important personal things that are not niche areas. Unfortunately, a lot of people are dealing with these issues. Uh, and so I think the more we can sort of cover real life true crime, like the odds you are going to be the victim of a serial killer, fortunately, are very, very low. The odds you're going to be mugged or, you know, attacked on a subway train late at night here in Manhattan as a woman are substantially higher. So I think pulling in some of those more real life topics and preparing people and educating them is uh, is definitely one way we try to uh, promote the, you know, the sort of advocacy side of CrimeCon. How prevalent is dating apps then in CrimeCon? <laughs> the dating app, like how to be cautious on them? Yeah. How do you say it? So it's actually one thing I'm looking at for the Vegas show right now is that kind of, we haven't done that kind of session yet, specifically dating apps. We've done some stuff, some stuff on social and a lot about keeping your kids safe online, but we haven't done like you're on a, you've seen a guy twice and you're getting some red flag vibes. You know, how, what do you do about that? Or what are your options? How do you explore that? Uh, how do you background check in a responsible way? We don't have trying to turn people into mini hackers themselves, but there are some, there are some reasonable and responsible things that I think everybody can do to make sure that the person they're dating, for example, is who they say they are, if those red flags aren't going off. So I like that session for Vegas and it's something we might do. There's Vegas has its share of uh, charlatans and scam artists. So I think it's a, a good town for that. Has the explosion of true crime, Kevin, made people more fearful in your opinion? I hope not. I don't think so. Uh, not in my experience and from what I've seen of the crowd. I think that there is, there, there, it's a reasonable question to say if you engage in content, does it just put that content on your mind more? If you watch a horror movie before bed, are you going to have dreams about the horror movie? But from what they tell us in the surveys and in person and everything else, I think it's an audience that is a craving education. I think that they use that. They, they use what they're taught in a responsible way, not in a, a fear way. And B is looking for to be active. So a lot of the folks who come and we do get a tremendous amount of victims, families and, um, and folks who are looking for a giant crowd hug, as I, as I've said before, they, you take a family. So just to not to be abstract about it, to give you a specific case, there's an awful case in Delphi, Indiana, two girls were killed. Um, this goes back to 2017. Our first event happened to be in Indianapolis that year. And we developed a relationship with this family and our group feels a real kinship to this family, uh, the Delphi families. And we've had them out every year. You know, the police come and offer what they can about the case and the progress that their lack of progress that they're making in some years. But what it really is about is about that family getting up on stage and seeing that crowd, I'm getting goosebumps as I say it, stand, applaud, 
stand up afterward, hug them, cry with them. It's like there's a catharticism to this where we can't, I can't find the perpetrator, you know, and, and the audience can't find the perpetrator, but we can support the family. We can make them sure, sure that they know that these girls, as long as I'm doing this event, will not be forgotten. Um, and we can do that for a lot of families, and a lot of victims and a lot of survivors. And so I think that a lot of our group comes to be part of that healing process and lend their emotion to um, some of these folks who have been through some of the worst things that anybody can imagine. And so we really, when I think about what's the, what's the best use of the platform at the end of it, yeah, there was some fun things. The police dogs came and did a demo about how they find bombs and those like, that's, that's all great. But, you know, I'm most proud of the, the way we have, I think, supported some of the families and the victims of the family, the, the, the victims and survivors uh, just to be sure that they, they know that they're not forgotten. Is there one case that you're repeatedly asked about no matter what event you're at? No, because I think it's so, this crowd is so educated and so passionate about the genre that they, they're everywhere. You know, this year, the Gabby Petito case and Brian Laundry case, um, which we're in the middle of right now, or I guess not in the middle of, but still is in the news cycle has popped in a way that it's gone beyond like the true crime community to the, overall consciousness of the public and occasionally cases do do that where we'll get a ton of people writing in and just saying, you know, can you cover this case? Can you have so-and-so to talk more about it? Or I saw this person on the news. Can you bring them in? But generally speaking in terms of, of kind of the, the library of cases, it's all over the board. Um, and most of the stuff that, that you would expect is stuff people, most people have heard of, you know, John Benet Ramsey will continue to get asked about. Like there's the, the sort of very famous, Mm-hmm. unsolved cases that I think will always be in, in the national um, will always have a fascination among the public black Dahlia going back to the California and whatever that was the 1930s, forties. Um, you know, these cases just, as long as they're not solved, I think there's always a contingent of people. What's the one with the guy that jumps out of the DB Cooper, right? People still talk about the DB Cooper. There's just these like famous main cases that always come up. But other than that, it's really it's really all over the board. And I think another use of our platform, since our event has gotten so large and gets a lot of media attention, is to shine a light on cases that are not in public attention. And I, I really I enjoy doing that for the police departments to get involved, for the families to get involved, to have their case that they feel like no one has ever paid attention to all of a sudden take the stage at GrimeCon in front of 5,000 people, get this media attention, get this podcaster attention, get this blogger attention. Again, they want to be heard, you know, and if 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 tips and leads and things can come out of that incredible, it's not the expectation, but they want to know that, that people care. And I think we have an opportunity to provide that for them. Hey everybody join the all new members area on my before the lights podcast website, the salute chin chin package includes access to the extra five shout out on a future show, some bonus content, the zoom calls, Also, we're going to have some rewards for you. Get the brand new limited edition poker chip. It looks absolutely fantastic. You're going to get 10% off all merch as well. Your name added to the show notes. To join for only $7.99 a month, go to beforethelightspod.com slash support. That's beforethelightspod.com slash support. Are there controversies that surround CrimeCon or that happen at these events? Well, I hope you didn't jinx me. I mean, not, <laughs> not, not, uh, there's, there's people who are controversial. Uh, and 
I think like anything else, we've had people attend to some of the audience doesn't love. Um, my, I guess my stance on that is you, if you try to program an event for 5,000 people to be a hundred percent to the liking of all 5,000 people, you will have no speakers. So it's very difficult to look at it that way. We have internal lines, um, editorial lines. We have, you know, folks that we, we won't host, you know, I wouldn't make that public, but we have folks that we won't host that we know for various things that they've said or, or done. There's, there's ethical lines. Um, and some of those that we don't have to hopefully think about until they were actually presented to us, but I'll give you a hypothetical one. You know, would you host OJ Simpson, right? Here's a guy who was acquitted quote unquote, I'm using, you can't see my video if you're listening to the pod, but he was acquitted of murder. Uh, he was subsequently convicted of some armed robbery charges, which is still really hard to believe, but you know, OJ Simpson wants to come and talk about the murders. Is that educational or is that sensationalism? So I have my answer to that. I'm not going to give it, but I think there, there's ethical questions around certain people that would be very interesting. But to your question, I will, I will get into one, which, cause I think it's an interesting use case or interesting example. There was a guy in New York um, who was labeled by the New York post as the cannibal cop. New York post of course loves their, uh, Headlines. Headlines. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, so once someone's called the cannibal cop, it's irresistible and he's on the front page. Now the actual story, which I, I, I won't sidetrack us too much here, but the actual story is that this, this was a disgusting, this man was a, was a New York city cop who was newly married with a young child, living in Staten Island, who after his wife and child would go to bed and go down to his basement, log into his computer, go on these message boards and engage in these grotesque conversations, absolutely grotesque. Uh, all you can look it up. His name is Gil Valley, um, and nobody, I believe, including Gil Valley, would defend the conversations that this man was having with other anonymous people on these late night message boards. At some point into this, one of the conversations that he was having involved a family friend in another state. They, him and his wife then at some point, again, weeks later, decide that they're going to go visit this family friend. The wife discovers these messages, which you can imagine to her shock. She thought she was married to one person. She realized she was married to someone who was having these incredibly disgusting thoughts and calls, leaves the house, calls the police. Police come, read everything, arrest him. So long story short, this guy goes to jail or goes to trial, and he's convicted by a jury. He's convicted of... Uh, gosh, why can't I think of the charge? Not murder, of course, because he didn't actually commit a murder. It was not attempted murder. Conspiracy? Or conspiracy. Conspiracy to commit murder. And, and the, the, they, the reason that the charge existed was essentially that this planning of this trip to see the family friend resulted in an actionable move toward something that was discussed in this virtual world. They put those two and two together and they said, you made a move. There was a conspiracy. If you had you gone down there, you may well have killed her. That sort of thing. I'm, generalizing the story quite a bit. Anyway, he goes, he's convicted, he's sentenced, appeals done, it goes to a judge, and the judge looks at it and says, I know a jury of 12 people convicted this guy. There's no crime here. This is a thought crime, right? This guy wrote disgusting things. You can't put someone in prison for thoughts. If we do, we're going to be, in, we're going to go down a very slippery slope here. The judge frees this guy and uh, acquits him of the charges. And so now here's this man, Gil Valley, years later, writing a book and comes across my desk. Now the controversy would be the cannibal cop is speaking at crime. That's the, 
That's one framing. Mm-hmm. My Kevin's framing would be a man convicted of thought crimes and later acquitted by a judge is, who would, an HBO documentary was made out of um, wants to come and tell his version of the events and why he does not believe any of the things he wrote are germane to have, having committed a crime. So we did the session and I would say of all the things we've ever done, that was the most controversial session we've ever programmed in terms of the pre of it. Tons of, I will not set foot in a convention center. If that guy's breathing the same air, I get it, right? Not a, not a guy, you know, cannibal cop. I don't want to, I don't want to have dinner with the guy, you know? Um, but I think the session was packed and the reviews from afterwards, once people sat down and listened to him, I would say the agreement or the sort of like, did people, did he convince people is a, is a separate question, but the feedback from what I care about, the feedback from the people who sat in that room for an hour was, I'm glad I did this. I'm glad I got past the New York Post headlines and engaged in a topic that was uncomfortable because as we go down this road of more and more internet and VR and whatever Mark Zuckerberg has been building now with the metaverse, this is going to become more and more a question. The things you think or the things you say and what you think are private anonymous forums, if those are chargeable, actionable crimes, we have a lot of law, we have a lot of new legal territory to cover. So there's a very interesting legal question that I thought was very germane to CrimeCon, but Sorry for the long-winded answer. You asked about controversy. That was that was the one that comes to mind. No, it's good. That's a good story. And you segue right into this. Then my next thing is there's a forum platform for people called CrimeCon HQ. If you kind of just would explain that to the listeners and what they can expect if they would go to that link. Well, one of the things we heard years and years of doing this is that true crime fans, when they're not at CrimeCon and they're engaging day-to-day with content, they are on Facebook or they're on Twitter or they're on Reddit. And the problem with these platforms, as many of us have come to realize, is that a lot of the people that are engaging there are not engaging for very good reasons. They're trolls or they're takedown artists or they just want to insult. They're not, you know, it's not, a, it's not a, I don't think anybody would say that a lot of those places are dynamic educational conversations around topics we all care about. So the idea of Crime HQ was really to create um, a digital space that's safe for these real fans, you want to talk about a specific case or you want to talk about the latest in forensic genealogy. Like this is a place you could do it surrounded by thousands of other people who are as passionate and educated as you are about these topics, which leads to some very good conversations and very educational conversations, uh, stories that can be discussed in a way or theories that can be put out in a case in a way that it's not, you feel like you're going to put something out and just get shoved down. So I like in crime HQ is the sort of, uh, day-to-day like meeting house and then crime con is like our family reunion once a year we all get to see each other in person and then we sort of interact with each other in crime hq so if anybody's listening and they do like true crime i i I would say check it out it's you do have to really like true crime for it to make sense for you but if you do it's a community that um i don't think exists anywhere else there'll be a link in the show notes listeners to go to crime con hq and crime con is expanding you had your first international event in london how was it received in the UK? Yeah, we can really pick it, huh? You do an international event in a, right, out of, right in a pandemic. But yeah, we, you know, the UK is, UK and Canada and Australia are probably the three places most like the US in terms of, of, of people's passion and engagement for true crime. So we found a really good partner in the UK that we felt very comfortable with. This is very, this is not like a, uh, right now in New York, Ryan, there's an NFT convention happening this week these non-fungible tokens. I have known nothing about them, but this is not a non-fungible token. This, this is like people's lives. 
This is if you treat the subject material wrong, people and families and victims can be very hurt by this. So I don't lend like that. I take that very seriously and I take the trust in that very seriously. So the hard part about expanding actually for us in other territories is not so much as their demand and do we want to do it. It's who are the partners that we feel can bring this to life the right way and make sure that they're aligned with us completely on the ethical issues and, and everything else that goes along with it. So we did find that in the UK and it was wild. I mean, we had, um, yeah, we had four or 500 folks for the first year over there in a hotel for the weekend, very similar to what we do here, except I knew none of the cases, which was great to sit in and listen to a whole new, all these things that I'd never heard before, but their passion for like, we did the, we did search and rescue dog demo and the reactions there were exactly what you have here. You know, people want their selfies with the dogs. They want to pet the dogs <laughs> and then they're amazed by, by what these dogs can do. Um, and I think that that, that pertained to almost everything we did over there. Number one thing that people always want to do is get active. So we do these like murder mystery, CSI forensic um, games where you're solving a fictitious case, but to do it, you're using forensics, you're using logic, you're using all these sort of skills that you've learned. We've done that successfully over here for a lot of years and we made a run at it there. And again, that was the one like mine around the corner. People want to get out of their seat. They want to like do this stuff, not just watch the stuff. So it's fun. I think they're not very different than we are when it comes to, uh, when it comes to wanting to engage on the content. 2022 Vegas, when and how can a listener attend? So the Wednesday, April 29th to May 1st, we're doing it at Paris and Valley's right on the strip. Uh, and it's pretty, we're, 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 I wouldn't say we're sold out in terms of tickets. Um, we're getting close, but God love the NFL. They decided to move the draft that was previously canceled to our weekend. So that weekend, Vegas is a very difficult hotel weekend. And, uh, our hotel room rates are really good. Uh, if people are thinking about coming, I definitely would recommend if they're not, if they're from Vegas, you're golden. If you're not from Vegas, I would definitely recommend getting into our hotel block right away and reserving the ticket. But it's crimecon.com has all the information. So Kevin, how many people do you limit each CrimeCon to? It depends on the venue. So the we we try to make it up, you know, try and just not to pack everything in and make it so it's like standing room and not. it's part of it is the experience and we want people to enjoy it. So we try to let it breathe a little bit. The this year, it's going to be around 5,000. I think it's going to be around our cap for what the space is that we have over there. In um, previous years, like in New Orleans, we had around 35, 3,600 was the cap for that space. Um, before that, we were in Nashville with around 3,100. So it's been this, the Vegas event will be the biggest event we've done. From what we're seeing, people are really excited to get back out there. I think for a lot of people, this could be their first kind of big trip since everything changed. And so... They're really excited for CrimeCon. They're really excited to travel again. And they're really excited for Vegas. So I'm not entirely sure what to expect, but I, some reason, something tells me that the 8 a.m. sessions on uh, Saturday and Sunday morning may not be too packed. <laughs> being it's Vegas, being it's CrimeCon, I need to ask, how does organized crime fit into CrimeCon? Yeah, great question. We haven't done a ton, a ton of organized crime, but we are. This is obviously going to be the year for it. I'm working on a couple of things that I don't want to give away just yet, but I, what I want to do is, is not do it in the sort of straightforward way that people would expect. And so there's one idea that I'm really excited about and that we're developing that if it works out, I think will kind of bring the history of organized crime to life in a way that is very unique for people. It will kind of encompass everything we do really well, which is storytelling, education, and, uh, and community, and let them sort of experience it rather than just sitting in a chair and hearing about it. 
So not going to, not going to spill the beans yet, but we're working on something pretty cool. Sounds good. I don't know if you've tracked this or not, but how many cases has CrimeCon helped solve? Oh, good one. Yeah, I don't, I don't track it. And I don't know that I would be able to track it anyway. Like a lot of the stuff that we hear is way after the fact, like I'll get a call from someone who will say, Hey, did you know that so-and-so detective ended up connecting with so-and-so forensic expert, uh, that they met at CrimeCon and then ultimately they, you know, they had dinner two months later and this thing led to this thing. So we've done a couple other events called CrowdSolve events, which were, these events were one case focused. So it was a full weekend over one case where the, the intent was to give law enforcement as many new leads as we could. You know, we know from those, neither were solved, uh, which is, which is unfortunate and something that is, uh, that, that I think about all the time in terms of how to continue to help. But we also know that what some of the things that have come out of those events that we did were, were extraordinarily helpful to either ruling some persons of interest out, ruling others in, or even finding new evidence. And one, one example that I'll give you is an event that we were talking, we were running where a paint chip from an automobile was a key piece of evidence. And this paint chip had been sitting down in this basement for 12 plus years and it was, you know, everyone knew that it was likely a chip from the car that was used by the perpetrator, but that's kind of as far as they got. It was like a generic paint chip. And one of the experts we had at the event said, hey, did you know that the Royal Canadian Mounted Police is the only agency in the world that can take a chip of paint from a car and tell you make model year of the car from the chip? And the detective, this is a small department, was like, absolutely not. I'd never heard that before. It's like, well, I'll give you a contact. So that chip went off to Canada to the Royal Mounted Police who are going to you know, ultimately come back with a report on the make model year of that car. And it's an example that I like to give when people think like, you know, can you solve a case? Well, no, we don't have a golden envelope that you open with the name of the perpetrator at the end of the event. But what we have are things like that, where that piece of evidence might now trigger five new conversations that cold case detective goes and has, where he says, hey, you know, so-and-so, I just want you to know, you know, we've been talking to you for 12 years about your whereabouts that night. Uh, interestingly enough, we now know the car that was on scene that day was the same make, model, and year of the car you owned at that time. Like, isn't that interesting? It just shakes things loose, you know, and it's, it's a process. And back to your our very earlier conversation about wanting things to go fast and go from like A to Z overnight, police investigations are very much the same way. It's methodical. No one likes to hear it, but you really, especially with cold cases, it's one door leads to another door. 10 years later, a couple who was married get divorced. When they were married, they loved each other. Neither was talking. Now they hate each other. They're both talking. You know, people change, marriages change, jobs change, dynamics change. And that's what it takes to solve cold cases. And that's where we can get involved because we can we can shake those branches and, and shake things up in a way that uh, may not have been done before. You've done some different things. You've had a, a cruise with CrimeCon. You're now over in the UK What's next on the horizon for CrimeCon? What's the next branch out in, in Kevin's future? <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, I want to get the pandemic mostly just gone from a standpoint of impacting events. I think that would be really helpful to us to decide. And hopefully that Vegas is just going to be very much back to a normal weekend. People can just let their guard down and be around each other. They can shake hands. They can get books signed, all that. So that's step one. But I think, in terms of my roadmap, Crime HQ, which you mentioned, is, is near and dear to my heart. I, we've been doing really cool live events in there every week. So rather than having to wait for Vegas to go see something about the Brian Laundry case, we can react to that that Wednesday by having a reporter or our correspondent down in Northport, Florida, on the front lawn of this is when he was still missing of the house, you know, and really like take you to the scene in a way that's relevant to the news cycle. 
So we're doing events there. We do book clubs in there. We have a cold case club in there. I think there's a ton of content and events that I want to continue to mix into the Crime HQ world um, that uh, we're just sort of in the first inning on that. So that's kind of where the focus is outside of CrimeCon right now. How has CrimeCon then changed how Red Seat Ventures operates? Well, we had to learn a lot about events. We, you know, I, I mean, it's, it sounds funny, but in, in back then, I honestly, this is not a joke, Googled, like, how do you put an event on in a hotel? That was my Google search. So people don't know that the, the hotel gives you hotel space in exchange for selling a certain number of the rooms. So the, the meeting space is free. You just have to book whatever the number is, 500, 1,000, 1,500 rooms. So every room you don't book, you pay for. So if a room costs $229 a night and you have 1,000 rooms that you need to sell to get this meeting space, you only sell 800. Well, Kevin now pays for 200 rooms at $229 a night times three nights. You can imagine that adds up, adds up fast. Quick. So for a startup company with no cash in the bank, those initial conversations of like, well, what's, what's the liability going to be? They're very, <laughs> they're very hard to take. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we've learned a lot since then. And, and, uh, you know, I think Red Sea would not have survived the pandemic if it happened in our first year. Luckily we were far enough along that, that we were diversified enough, but I think for Red Sea to answer your question, it's, it's, it's provided us a really nice foundational business that is growing and, and doing all the things we wanted to do from a business perspective and from a relationship perspective, that's allowed us to explore and expand out in other areas of the Red Sea business that we can take some chances that we otherwise would not have been able to take uh, without CrimeCon being Kevin, what are the feelings of what you and your brother have accomplished with CrimeCon? You know, trying to make me cry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, it's, it is, it's the most tangible success we can point to in terms of, of, of a public facing business where we can say, Hey, this was, this did not exist. And, and now, you know, look what it is and look hopefully what it's going to be. I have, I have a sign up here that you can't see, but it says everything started as nothing. It's one of my favorite sayings because it's true. I mean, everything, the podcast I'm on right now with you, you know, if you didn't decide to do before the lights and then put the time and work in to do it every time you do it to book guests, to turn on the mics, to edit the shows, to upload. It's, it's a pan. There's a sausage behind the scenes. It's pain in the neck. But it's nothing unless you do it. And it's the way everything starts. And I, you know, I think emotionally, it's a feeling of, I think, uh, being proud that something that was an idea was executed on and is coming to life in this way. I think the fact that it's helping others and the fact that fans are, are finding such enjoyment in it. I saw somebody in our help box yesterday say that they are postponing their wedding to come to CrimeCon. I was like, do not put, I wrote, do not postpone your wedding, get married and then come. We can do both. Don't, I don't want to have that on my conscience, but the fact that fans find such a, such a thrill in it, you know, it, it's, it's, it makes me proud, but it also, I think success builds on success. You get more confident when you have a success that you can now do something else you haven't tried before. So, you know, there's other Red Sea businesses that I think are also at zero that are mind-bogglingly risky and expensive that I probably would have just left in the idea vision stage before. Now that we've done this, I'm sort of like, well, maybe we can do that. Maybe, maybe there is no good reason why no one's tried that before. Let's, let's give it a go and take a, take a real look at it. I know you're a busy man. I just want to say thank you for your time and thank you for coming on before the lights. I've enjoyed the conversation and folks, there's going to be five more minutes of the extra five. So make sure you get subscribed to the members area, but Kevin, thanks for your time. Yeah. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks for having me. Great questions. 
I appreciate it. For merch, go to beforethelightspod.com slash merch. That's beforethelightspod.com slash merch. And follow me on Instagram at beforethelightspodcast. Thank you for listening to Before the Lights. I'm Tommy Canale. And until next time, everybody, I salute a chin chin. <laughs>